You'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, please. Taking a very small portion of Scripture today, but very important portion. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. It's a short story and one you're probably quite familiar with, especially if you grew up in the church attending Sunday school. Favorite story of Sunday school publishers. Jesus calming the storm. So let me just read the three verses and then we'll unpack the truth contained in God's word. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? And so we hear this story in Sunday school and maybe saw it on a flannel graph. Got the choppy waters, and then you pull that piece of felt off and put, put, put the placid waters. And then the takeaway for the children is, When you cry out to Jesus, he helps you in the storms of life. And we try to turn this into a metaphorical type story when kids are so literal. And you know what? This passage is is literal. And for some reason, we like to give the metaphorical application to young children when they should just be in awe of, wow, I don't know anyone else who can make a storm stop. Hey, me neither. We can't even accurately predict them around here, (laughs) let alone get them to stop. And certainly the Bible does teach that Jesus is there for us in times of trouble, that the Lord is an ever-present help in times of trouble, that he said, Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age, that we can cast all our cares on Jesus that he will give us the peace that passes all understanding, but sometimes the storm doesn't go away. It hasn't even been a year, has it, since some friends of our community were on a lake and a storm overcame them. And so we can't look at this passage and be trite about it and say, call out to Jesus and he'll make all the storms go away. We'd miss the whole point of the passage. And we'd set people up with a false hope. And eventually they would be disappointed when they cry out to Jesus and the storms did not go away. So what's really going on here? We read Luke's version. All three of the synoptic gospel writers include this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew's version goes like this. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. 
And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Notice the wording is different. The scenario is the same. There's a boat. The disciples are on the boat. They're on the Sea of Galilee. There's a great storm, and Jesus is asleep. The facts are consistent, but what they say when they wake him up is, is, is different. In Luke, it was Master, Master. In Matthew, it's Lord. Now, not Lord in the sense that they've recognized him as God, the way we use Lord, but that's a title of respect in their culture. In Mark's version, it goes like this. On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So in Mark's version, there's some other boats as well. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So we get a little more facts. Jesus himself was in the stern. That's the back of the boat. I looked it up just to make sure. <laughs> Asleep on the cushion. There's some sort of cushion back there. And Mark gives us that detail. What a, what a wonderful detail. He's asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Notice a different title, Teacher. So we have three different titles. So the story is the same, but we may be a little concerned about the wording. And certainly Bible translators have to deal with this. Did I get a nod? Yeah, from... Yeah. And so theologians talk about this phenomenon in the Synoptic Gospels. Were all of those words actually said? Or is it close enough? To what was said. You know, if I interview you after a harrowing escape, maybe you wouldn't remember the exact words that were said. And if that's the case, what does that do to our view of inerrancy? What if somebody didn't say, Master? If you remembered it that way, does that now make the Bible have an error in it? And so this debate is given Latin names, because that's what theologians do, uh, so that they can charge more for seminary. No. <laughs> they're going to charge what they're going to charge, right? So uh, the, the words are ipsissima verba versus ipsissima vox. How's that for your 10-cent words today? Ipsissima verba versus ipsissima vox. Ipsissima means the exact same verba, word, vox, voice. So the same words, this view holds that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to quote the exact words of a historical figure so that the Bible is without errors. So we could imagine in this scenario that you have a lot of confusion, a lot of chaos, this, this storm. They're trying to wake Jesus up. One person said, Master, Master, and another said, Lord, and another said, Teacher. 
And it may very well be the case that all of these words were actually spoken. Ipsissima Vox says, it's not as important that you get every single word recorded. It's more important that you get the voice or the meaning of what the person being quoted was saying. You still have an inerrant Bible. If after the sermon, you come back to me this week and say, boy, I really like what you said about da-da-da, and you don't quote me word for word, but you captured the sense, I wouldn't say you were in error. Now, sometimes you guys quote me, and I go, what sermon were you listening to? <laughs> don't put those words in my mouth. You know, I, I, I didn't say it that way. It's the way you heard it. And so this creates an environment where less ethical theologians will say, well, since we don't have the exact words and the writer replaced the exact word with another word, we need to wonder what his agenda was. He had a story he wanted to tell that the actual story wasn't really telling and he took some artistic license. We don't affirm that at all. So which view is correct? I don't think there needs to be a debate between the views. Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic, so anything we have in the Greek is already not the exact words. Jesus preached for hours and hours, and it takes about 15 minutes to read the Sermon on the Mount. There's a good chance that not everything that he said is recorded there. But the doctrine of inerrancy and the doctrine of inspiration, which are both biblical doctrines, assure us that the meaning is saved for us in the Scriptures. The meaning God wanted us to get is recorded... And if the meaning depends on the exact word being used, then God will inspire the writer to use the exact word, even when they're translating Aramaic into Greek. God has something he wants us to know, and he has taken great pains to make sure that what we have here is exactly what he wants us to know. When the exact word is important to the meaning, you can be sure that the exact word is what we have. For instance, in Galatians 3.16, Paul talks about this Abraham's seed. And he says, the scripture says, seed, singular, not seeds, plural. You think the exact word is important? You bet. In that context. But whether one writer says the boat was already filling up with water and another writer says the waves were crashing over the top or another writer says, does it really change the meaning? There was a storm. That's the important thing. And the boat was going down. People who were very experienced fishermen knew they were in grave danger. So we don't need to get caught up in the different wording between the synoptic Gospels. 
we harmonize the Gospels and get a fuller sense of what was going on. If one writer says Lord and one writer says Master and one writer says Teacher, that ought to tell us that the title that was used is not determinative of the meaning of that scripture. If I built a whole sermon off of the word master, and sometimes ship commanders were called master, and you've heard sermons like that, whoa, I would have never seen that. It's because it's not what the passage is about. Making a big deal out of words. Yes, the words are important, but the different titles they used for Jesus don't get caught up in the fact that we see three different titles. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, some Sadducees come to Jesus and question him on the resurrection. Remember, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. And they said, look, there's no resurrection to be found in the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus says, well, you know, in Exodus, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I was. Verb tense matters. So yes, the words matter. And sometimes the exact wording matters. But when you see discrepancies in your Bible, don't panic. It doesn't affect the meaning, which is the most important thing. We often say around here that The meaning of the scripture is the scripture. If you don't have the meaning, you don't have the scripture. Oh, you have the scripture. But if you don't read it, understand it, and believe it, then you don't have the scripture. So we can be assured of some things. Jesus was on a boat with his disciples. A great storm came up. He was asleep. They woke him up. He calmed the storm and he said, where is your faith? And they were amazed. Those are the key elements of the story that are consistent in all three versions. There are a couple words, though, in all three versions that are consistent, and that's where we want to put our focus. All three writers use the word perishing. Isn't that an interesting word? Master, we are perishing. Lord, save us. We are perishing. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The word in the Greek is apollomy. In Hebrew, it's abaddon. And it certainly can refer to something that is being destroyed in the temporal sense. Uh, Jesus uses it to describe the bread in John chapter 6. He says, well, don't ask for the bread that, that is perishing. You want the bread that never perishes. In one sense, anything that's alive is perishing because everything dies. The, The word in the Hebrew comes from the word picture of a sheep wandering from the fold, caught maybe in some bushes, and the sheep is going to perish. It's either going to starve or die from the elements, or be eaten. And so, it's as good as dead. It is perishing. And 
the disciples on the boat realized we are going to die. We are perishing. However, this word is often used in the Bible to describe eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. In fact, of the 12 times Jesus uses Apollomy in the New Testament, 10 of them refer to eternal destruction. Something that is eternally perishing. I believe Mark helps us understand what is in the heart of the disciples. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Beloved, when God turns up the heat in our life, that is when we know what is really in our hearts. We can play Christian pretty good when life is smooth. And James says, count it as joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. It reveals what's in the heart. It shows you where your faith is really at. Remember the parable of the sower that Nathan taught last week? How are you going to know what kind of soil your heart is if God doesn't turn up the heat? And so, the disciples mistook Jesus' sleep for apathy. Jesus wasn't worried about the situation. He has the bigger view in mind. Now, it's not that Jesus never worried. We see he will worry in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, that's something to be worried about. He knew that the wrath of God was going to be poured out on him for the sins of the world. There's something to be worried about. His sleep was to allow for an opportunity for the apostles to see their lack of faith. But all they could think about is, we are perishing, and this guy who called us to be disciples is asleep. He doesn't care. How could he sleep? I want to take a moment here to really call your attention to this. In my nine years of ministry here at the church, and, and just, I guess, my 45 years on the planet now, some things really start to come into focus in life. How powerful the human emotion of self-pity can be. Absolutely destructive. And we've all been there. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares. How, how could they just go on and, and go to their parties and now with... With social media, you can find out all the parties that you weren't invited to. And when something's going on in your life that to you is a stop the presses moment, and the presses don't stop, you can get very angry. And sometimes the hurt is real. And sometimes somebody is maliciously causing the hurt. But most of the time, it's been my experience that this kind of hurt is from false perception. 
I've so convinced myself that everybody is against me and nobody cares about me and woe is me. And you start going down that road and it is so hard to pull yourself out. I bet you've been there. You're hurting me and you don't care. You're withholding something I think I deserve or need. And and sadly, I've seen too many of my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ in that place blame the church for not being loving. And they become convinced that they need to go because this is a place that is not loving. And they are in such a dark place that they don't have the wherewithal to go, wait a minute, time out. These people? My friends. The people who were at the hospital visiting me. The people who were there when my mother passed away. People who brought me meals. The people who pray with me. They laugh with me. They enjoy life with me. They worship the Lord. We've done evangelism together. we've, We've discipled together. We've served together. And suddenly, these people are the worst most unloving, most uncaring people on the planet. And you say, really? All all these people? That doesn't make any sense. And so you have two choices in that moment. You can keep assuming no one cares. Or you can consider the possibility that you have misinterpreted your circumstances. Maybe the reason people are responding the way they are and not the way you want them to is because they are actually seeing reality and you're not. And that's what I think is happening in the boat. It's not that Jesus didn't know a storm was going on. It's that Jesus knew there is a far worse storm that all of us have to come to grips with. Now, regardless of the source of the hurt, the emotions are real. I never want to downplay anyone's emotions. But we can't let our emotions dictate truth to us. Our emotions are horribly inconsistent. And why I bring this up is because, sadly, when somebody is in this place, the last thing they want to hear from the people who love them is, I think you're raining on your own parade. Not only are you not going to weep with me, but now you're going to insult me and tell me it's all in my head. No, 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 that's not what it is. I mean, to throw someone a lifeline who's in this place is going to take risk. You, you understand that going in and telling someone basically that they need to change their mind about their circumstances, which is repentance, may cause some immediate negative feedback, to say the least. But love says, I will not fear. I will pursue. 
because God pursued me when I wasn't recognizing that my greatest problem in life is that I had rejected God. I had my own ideas about what my problems were. And in fact, God was not fixing my problems. And God had every right to say, what, you're, that's the way you're going to treat my love and my grace? No, he pursued me and he pursued me and he pursued me out of love until my eyes were open and I understood everyone else isn't the problem. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And so certainly the disciples were in a horrible situation. No doubt about it. Don't downplay it. And they had an expectation as to how they thought Jesus should be acting in the moment. And Jesus was not acting that way. I, I assure you, Jesus is being extremely loving in this situation. But let's be honest, if you were in the same situation and the one person who you thought might be able to do something about it slept through the whole thing, we would all respond in the same way. Don't you care that we are perishing? So this word perishing, very important. Back to the story, Jesus wakes up, he rebukes, the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. In Matthew, he says, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And in Mark, he says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? So we have no faith, little faith, and where is your faith? And we kind of run into that same problem we started with. Well, what did he say? Did he say all three of those things? Or is the Bible capturing the essence of what he was saying? All three of those statements capture the same essence. You should have more faith by now. You've seen me do miracles. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Remember Nathan was teaching last week how important the word hear is, that we hear the word of God and then obey the word of God. Hear the word of God, obey the word of God. That word hear over and over and over in the parable of the sowers. And then they say, hey Jesus, your, your, uh, your mother and your brothers are calling for you. And he says, these are my mothers and my brothers, those who hear the word of God and obey, act on it. The word here, so important to the Jewish mind. Remember, three times a day they pray the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Israel, Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad, Shema. Here, with the intent of obeying. Here is an important word. And they, they say, they realize the winds and the waves heard his voice and obeyed. Who is this guy? I can only think of one guy who nature obeys. That's God. That's the way the Sunday school lesson needs to be taught. 
This man, Jesus, is like no other man. He has authority over nature. Remember the story of the prostitute who was washing his feet with her hair, and he forgives her sins, and what did they say? Who is this man who even forgives sins? Right? Because only God can forgive sins. And only God can command nature. You start to see the link. The only one who can command nature is the only one who can forgive sins. Jesus commands nature and it obeys. Therefore, Jesus can forgive sins. All three writers use the word faith. Did you notice that? Sure you did, because I underlined it. The verbal form of faith in English is believe or trust. So I went to my Bible software program, and you could type in a keyword search, and I'll show you every passage in the Bible where the, that word comes up. And I put in the word belief, belief, the noun, and nothing came up. Nothing. At least in the translations I was looking at. New American Standard, ESV, NIV, King James, New King James. Big fat zero came up. I'm like, maybe I typed belief wrong. I before E, if I you know. Um, B-E-L-E-I-F, nothing came up there either. Well, that's because we use the word faith to go with the verb believe. In the Greek, the verb pistuo, believe, turns into the noun form pistis, pistuo, pistis, same root. And we always translate pistis, faith. So, the Bible, in many places, puts together apollomy, perishing, with Pistis, faith. And I said, well, if all three writers use the word perishing, Apollomy, and all three writers use pistis, faith, these have to be pretty important words for the story. Where else does the Bible put Apollomy and pistis together in the same passage? And you can do that too with Bible software. 2 Corinthians 4.3, Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. Remember Nathan taught last week the surprising, shocking truth that the reason Jesus taught in parables wasn't to make the scripture more easy to see, but to hide it from those who refuse to believe the obvious. All right, if you're not going to believe the plain teaching, I'm going to put in parables now as a form of judgment. And not to bash on Sunday school publishers, but I'm going to. Plenty of publishers say, hey, Jesus taught in parables, therefore we should teach Sunday school in parables. What, and hide the truth from the kids? Oh, parables are wonderful because they use real life objects and kids love real, yes, use real life objects to teach the kids the truth. But don't think that a parable was taught by Jesus to uncover truth, he taught in parables to conceal truth from those who'd hardened their hearts to the obvious truth he so clearly had been teaching. 
And so the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. There's believing perishing. Polymy pistis. Pistuo. In this case, a pistuo. You put a in the front of a word and it means not or opposite. The unbelieving. So that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Yes, the God of this world, God, little g, Satan, blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Jesus said, some soil is like the seed falling on the path, and Satan comes and plucks it up before it has a chance to take root. Then we go to another passage written by Paul, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They refuse to love the truth. That's a way of saying they would not believe the truth. Therefore, and buckle your seatbelts, God sends them a strong delusion. Wait, I thought the God of this world, Satan, blinded them. Yes, he does. But this says... God, capital G, sends a strong delusion. Yes, he does. Which is it? It's both. We've been saying for three weeks now, don't untangle the mysteries of the Bible. Well, if God sends a strong delusion, then how can people be held responsible for their unbelief? He just says so because they refuse to love the truth. That is what the perishing are being punished for, refusing to believe the truth. God gets the credit when we believe, and we are fully culpable for not believing. The Bible clearly teaches this. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Where else is Apollome and Pistis in the same passage? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. What's the word of the cross? The whole gospel, the whole good news. That there is a God, that he existed before time that he created everything out of nothing by his word, that he created man in his image, that man fell by listening to Satan, by rejecting the truth of God and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That, that, that cross, and that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that he came to this earth to live a perfect life, die on a cross in our place, be buried and raised the third day. And that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all the saints this very moment. That word of the cross is foolishness to the perishing. How could there be a God who's always existed? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, who created God? And if someone created God, then who created that God? And, and really, he spoke everything into existence? That's ridiculous. And Why would it... A Jewish prophet die on a Roman cross. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greek. But to us who are being saved, 
To us who are no longer perishing, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set it aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where are all the smart people? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its own wisdom, which isn't really wisdom, did not come to know God, and so God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Perishing, Apollomy, believe, pistis. We see the foolishness of the world all around us. It is, it, is, it is front and center now. Have you been tracking the Supreme Court nomination hearings? The judge is an originalist. He believes that what the writers of the Constitution wrote had a meaning. And it is the meaning that should determine the way laws are interpreted today. And the people on the other side of the aisle are like, well, that's ridiculous. It can't mean now what it meant then. Certainly, the constitutional writers knew that life would evolve and morals would evolve, and they expect us to reinterpret the Constitution. That sounds a lot like Genesis 3. Did God really say you would die? Yes, he did. He said, on the day you eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Well, that's not what he meant God knew that on the day that you eat from that tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God and you'll know good and evil on your own. You can make up your own wisdom. It's amazing to me that the same people who for years in the universities and the schools have been saying there's no absolute truth are now getting mad at the current president for not speaking the absolute truth. What? There's truth now? Truth matters? I thought you were the alternative facts people. I studied it and learned it in college. They gave me a degree. It's foolishness, though. How could there not be objective truth? Of course, when I'm preaching, my words have meaning. You can't take my words and give them a different meaning. I mean, you can, but it would be foolishness. We would never be able to communicate. How much more so when God speaks is there one intended meaning for us. And that is what we're doing when we read the Bible. What is the meaning God intended for us to know? Believe it, trust it, embrace it, live it, proclaim it. Those who are perishing are those who say... I'll come up with my own truth. I'll come up with my own meaning. And we live in this world of this pluralistic society where everybody should just get to believe whatever they want to believe. Well, certainly you have the right to believe whatever you want to believe, even if it's horribly wrong. You have the right to believe it. For those who are being saved, we have come to the place where we believe the truth, we trust the truth, we embrace the truth, we live the truth, we proclaim the truth, 
and we repent in humility when we know we've rejected the truth and we're not living the truth. And we receive God's mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, in the boat, the disciples were overly concerned about the wrong kind of perishing. Overly concerned about the wrong kind of perishing. There's this interesting text that's coming up in a few months. We'll get a little sneak preview. On one occasion, some people present reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So they went down to Jerusalem to make sacrifices, and on their way to the temple, they were slaughtered by Pilate, and their blood was mixed with the blood that's supposed to be used for the atonement. Can you think of a more horrendous way for your life to end for a Jew? To be slaughtered on your way to make sacrifice and then have your blood intermingled with the holy sacrificial blood that was to be sprinkled on the altar. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? You know, because that's what the people were thinking. They must have been really horrible sinners for this thing to happen to them. And Jesus said, Really? You think they're any worse sinners than anyone else? No. No, he says, No. I tell you, No. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, at face value, it sounds like Jesus is saying, if you don't repent, you'll be slaughtered and have your blood mingled with the sacrifice. But we know that's not what he meant because people die all the time in in many different, countless ways. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, these people on the way to make sacrifice never in a million years would have conceived that this horrible fate was waiting them. Likewise, everyone is walking around this world thinking the worst thing that could ever happen to them is death and have no idea that something far worse awaits if you don't repent. The eternal type of perishing. You will all likewise perish. He, he subtly changed the meaning of perish from the temporal sense to the eternal sense. Speaking in riddles again, but those who want to know the truth will figure it out. And for everyone else, they're like, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Jesus has the correct perspective because he is from heaven. He has the wisdom of God. He's the wisdom of God incarnate. So who had the best perspective of what was actually going on in that boat that day? The people who were awake or the person who was asleep? The person who was asleep. How do you like that for irony? Oh, you guys thought you were awake? (laughs) The way the dialogue sounds in my mind, it, it sounds like this. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Oh, you're perishing. Indeed. You have no idea what perishing is. 
Don't you care about us? Jesus said in Luke 21, 17, And you will be hated by all because of my name. This is to the disciples. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. How can he say that when all the disciples were martyred? Because he's talking about it in the eternal sense. Apparently, you'll have all your hair on your resurrection body, on your head. That pastor's retirement we went to last week, and my pastor's bald, and he says the glorified state is baldness, and someday we'll all get to enjoy what he's been enjoying for years. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. How can he say that? How many millions, if not billions of Christians have died through the ages? He's talking about a different kind of perish, an eternal perishing. And he's so sure of this because he has called them, he has elected them, he has chose them, he has died for them, that no one will snatch them out of my hand. That promise can only be true if salvation completely belongs to God. And so, he wasn't afraid for the disciples in the boat that day. He knew the plan for their life. Nobody was going to die in the boat that day. And he was teaching them a lesson that there is a far worse perishing that you need to be thinking about. The same one who can command the waves and the wind to stop is the same one who can forgive sins. Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of of God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. There's one other place in the Bible where Apollome and Pistis collide. Lord, we are perishing. Don't you care? I care so much that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Beloved, whatever you're going through today, as hard as you think it is, and certainly there are difficult trials, compared to the glory of heaven, If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to worry about today. Nothing to worry about. Lord, I feel like I'm perishing. You were perishing. And then the day you put your faith in me, you were no longer perishing. I turned 45 last week. I feel like I'm perishing. Little by little. I know the older people are like, what a whiner, you know. Right? In a temporal sense, I'm perishing. We all are. But the day I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I was someone who used to be perishing. I am living. And the 98-year-old lady 
who's got no strength left in her bones, who knows Jesus, is more alive than the 18-year-old stud who doesn't know Jesus. Trust Jesus for the things we can't see. He knows. Father, thank you for caring about us. Thank you, Jesus. You do care that we were perishing. And for those of us who've placed our faith in you, we have assurance that we are no longer perishing, but very much living and living abundantly. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.